0: We are in the 100-day dare, and we're coming to the close, really. I mean, next Sunday, we wrap this thing up. How many of you guys have been enjoying this time? This has been a great season. We're reading Scripture together, and I'm preaching a sermon on what we're getting ready to read, and we're getting ready to come to the end. How many of you guys ever, you know, you start reading a book, and you get so interested in the book that you just have to turn to the very end of the book to see how it actually turns out? How many of you guys have ever done that before? Or let me ask it maybe in this way, since we're kind of in a, a time where uh, a lot of sports are happening right now. How many of you guys uh, record your sporting events and watch them later? You don't watch them live. Let me see if you record them. All right? We were just having a conversation last week about this. How many of you guys, the, those of you guys who record, you, like, like well, look, just Bob was telling me the other day, that he only watches the games that he, like he'll check the score to see if they won and then see if it's worth watching. How do you guys do that? You guys have done that? Okay. Yeah. Well, the cool thing about what we're in right now is as believers, we can turn to the end of the book and see how it turns out for all of humanity. And we get to check the score. And guess what, guys? We win, right? We win. And so we're going to look today at, at the end of the book and see how it all turns out. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You can say amen to that. That's victory over Satan right there. But it goes on, it gets even better. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's stop there for a second, because this is how God started it all out. He wanted to be a father with the family. He wanted to be God with his people in the garden but sin came, and what happened when sin came? You know, God, said, God created everything, and He said it was good. Does anybody remember what the Hebrew word for good is? Tov. He said it's tov, and He said it over and over and over again. But then sin entered the world, right? And things were not tov, and God has been retoving the world ever since, and He comes again in Jesus to be a God with his people, right? That's why he sent Jesus to be a God with his people. And we've been on this path, this culmination at the end that everything is gonna be set right once again. That just like things were supposed to be in the garden, we get to the end of the book and things are all set right. And it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How many of you guys are so thankful? You may be going through something right now, but God is good, and his goodness will prevail in the end. And so we know it started out Tov, right? And we know that it ends Tov. But the in-between from chapter 1 to the happily ever after, there's a lot of drama, isn't there? And God is on this mission to retove the world. And if God is on a mission to retove the world, then Satan is on a mission to detove the world. And he does that by trying to get you to question the character and the nature of God. This is what he started off with in the garden. He tried to get them to question the character and the nature and the goodness of God to detove the world. Now, there are several things that God does, but there are some things that God is. And one of the things that God is, we find out in our reading this week, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. There are some things that God does, but there are some things that God simply is. And it says that God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. We could say it this way. That love is God's DNA. You can't take love out of God because that's just simply the essence of God. God is love. It's in his DNA. When we see the love of God, we therefore see the toveness of God or the goodness of God. And if Satan can get you to question God's love, he gets you to question his goodness. So this is what the enemy is trying to do. So the question is, what what are we agreeing with? Are we agreeing with the voice of Satan? Are we agreeing with the voice of God? And the answer is found in the soil. Now, to help us understand this illustration, I've got to take you to one of my favorite places and my wife and I's favorite place because we enjoy doing this every spring to help check this out, to hear an illustration of what this looks like. Let's check it out. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story about a guy who went to go plant seeds. It goes like this, Matthew chapter 13, verse three, it says, and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. so it tells a story about seeds falling in different types of soil and depending upon the condition of the soil, determine what kind of fruit or even the success of whether it was going to grow or not. So I'm standing at our garden and every year we love to till up the garden. We love to plant, uh, you know, seeds in the ground and hopefully they begin to grow and produce a harvest so we can enjoy the fruit of that, all the vegetables, all the tomatoes and all the peppers that that shot of me tilling on the tractor was only put in there to show you how cool I look look driving a tractor, Um, but we we love to plant a garden every single year. And notice what Jesus talked about. It was all dependent upon the soil. So whatever is growing in your life right now is growing as a result of the nutrients, the type of nutrients, the type of soil that's in your heart. You know, here in our garden, we found that some things that grow underneath the ground like carrots and onions don't do so well as compared to the things that grow above the ground like tomatoes and peppers and so we've done soil tests to try to determine are there certain nutrients that really affect that that affect the things that grow underground that affect the things that grow above, above the ground i believe there is the same is true in our heart so don't be surprised at what's coming out of your life you can trace it back to the nutrients and the cultivation of what's happening on the inside of your heart let me give you an example of how this works first john chapter 4 verse 8 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What is it saying there? Fear and love don't grow in the same type of soil. Fear requires different nutrients in order to produce a harvest in someone's life than what love does. So Satan is looking for ingredients in people's hearts to be able to plant in fertile soil to be able to produce a certain type of harvest, just like God is looking for certain nutrients in our heart to be able to produce something like love because fear and love can't grow in the same soil. So don't be surprised at what's happening, what's coming out of your life. It can be directly traced back to the culture and the what's being cultivated in your heart. Are the ingredients there to produce fear or are the ingredients there to produce love? Are the ingredients there to focus on the goodness of God or are they to focus on other things or distractions in life? It all goes back to the soil of your heart. So here's the question: what is the condition of the soil in your heart today? What what is the condition of that? Is fear a result of that? Is it the love of God? Is it the purposes of God? You can trace it all back to the condition of your heart and the soil that's being cultivated in your heart. All right, so let's do a soil test today. Can we do that? Are there potentially lies in the soil of our heart that are contaminating and producing uh, an environment for things to happen in our heart that, that may not be what we want to have happen? Have you guys ever played two truths and a lie before? Anybody you know what I'm talking about? It's like where you, you say two things that are true and one thing that's not true but kind of sounds true. It's kind of what Satan does. He likes to give us a lie that kind of sounds true if we're not careful and we want to believe it because it kind of sounds true. Uh, and so I want to deal with some lies real quick in our heart that if if they are present in our life, they can really produce the wrong type of harvest in our life, okay? And the first lie is this, uh, God owes me. Now, now somebody might be saying, I, I, no, I don't think that at all. God doesn't owe me anything. I, go, I owe everything to God. I owe everything to God. But watch how quickly this works. Watch how quickly this shifts, okay? First John chapter 3, verse 22, it says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You want to see how quickly this lie gets planted in our heart? It kind of goes like this. God, I fill in the blank for you. Why don't I have fill in the blank from you? You see how quickly this lie gets planted in our heart? God owes me. God, I served. Why didn't that opportunity come? God, I believed. Why didn't this thing manifest? God, I forgave, but look, they're still doing this. Why haven't you changed this? God, I did the hard thing. I made the hard decision. I took the hard route. I obeyed when it was hard. Why don't I have this from you? You see how quickly that lie can be in our heart? When we start off, oh, God doesn't owe me anything, but God owes me because I did this. When you start viewing God as merely transactional, then what happens is you start, to, uh, you start measuring value and you start demanding rights. Now, here's the problem with this. It's one thing when we say God owes us, but here's how this manifests another way. When we screw up, if we have a transactional relationship with God, what happens is when we screw up, now we owe God. And so now I have to pay God back. You see... This lie in our heart begins to produce all kinds of fruit in our life that maybe we don't want to have. And and I I maintain that a lot of us, even though we're on this side of the cross and Jesus gave his life for us and he he, he surrendered, uh, he laid it all out there for us so he paid the price for our sins. I believe that a lot of us, if we could, we would go back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where if I sin, then there's a sacrifice that's brought because that makes sense for us to, to have a transaction relationship with God. Like, in some ways, it seems easier that if I sin, just go bring a lamb and let's sacrifice and let's just be done with it. That paid the price for my sin. And and some of us would rather just go back there because somehow we think that that system would somehow serve us well when down deep we know we could never keep up with that system. They tried and they could not keep up with that system. Here's the truth you've got to really understand. God is relational, not transactional. Oh, sure, there are the principles and promises of God, but the moment you turn God and your relationship into a transaction that happens, then there's fertile soil for all sorts of other things to begin to happen in your life. I want you to see this, how God is relational, not transactional. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Watch this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God to earn God's love, right? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins. See, unhealthy relationships are transactional relationships. Any relationship that you have, if it's a transactional relationship, it's going to become an unhealthy relationship. But healthy relationships are sacrificial relationships, and Jesus demonstrates what real love is, that he would sacrifice. The Bible says that even while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. That he didn't demand something for us in exchange for his sacrifice, that he sacrificed in advance with nothing in return. And how many you guys know, that's good news, isn't it? I love this quote out of this book. I read it, and I'll just read it for you. It says, the moment you bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, all of your sin is transferred into Christ's account and paid in full. It was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago, but that's only half the gospel. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy of God is when he, you, know, you deserve the punishment of God, but you don't get that, that's God's mercy, right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve, the righteousness of Christ. See, everything you've done wrong Is forgiven and forgotten, and everything Christ did right, his righteousness is transferred now to your account, and then God calls it even. See, the truth is, we don't want God to be fair. Because you know what? God's grace is not fair. And if we had a fair God, we wouldn't be so happy about a fair God, would we? (laughs) The truth is, God's grace is not fair. God's grace is so good. So we have to uproot that lie that God owes me. But that lie, if it starts to grow in our heart, it produces a second lie. And it's this, that God wants to punish me. Because if if I have a transactional relationship with God and I screw up, then guess what, I, I have to pay that back in some way. Now some of us struggle with this because we read in the Bible and we say, well, isn't God a God of wrath and a God of punishment and all sorts of things? Well, let's look at this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, Listen very carefully to this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now hey, you guys know that sure looks like a God of wrath and punishment, doesn't it? That's in the New Testament. Let's define punishment. Punishment is a penalty inflicted for an offense. Now, let me lay just some basic theology for us, okay, guys? Some basic theology. On the cross, what did Jesus do for us? He paid the price for our penalty and our offense. He took the punishment that was due us. So is God a God of wrath and punishment to you after you're saved? The answer is no. Is God angry with you? The answer is no. No. Because Jesus took our punishment on the cross. So what is this scripture saying? Here's what the scripture is actually saying. Okay, I know it's a difficult scripture to wrestle with, but here's what the scripture is actually saying. It's saying this, that if you despise the blood of Jesus, if you look at this in context, if you despise the blood of Jesus, all you have left is to go to the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins there. That system is over. If you go there, all you have left is punishment and wrath. The only way forward is through the blood of Jesus. And when you come through the blood of Jesus, Jesus paid the price for your penalty and for your sins. So don't go back to the old sacrificial system where you owe God and God owes you and God is out to punish. Go through the blood of Jesus. Can somebody say amen to that? That's what that scripture is talking about. 1 John chapter 4.18 even makes it more clear says there is no fear in love we just read this but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love so in other words what that's saying is that god is love and in god there is no fear fear is attached to punishment so punishment and love cannot go in the same category that means if god is love then he's not going to be out to punish you if you're in love if you're in christ see When I was, when we first had our first kid, we were the typical first parent, first, like first time parent. You know what first-time parents are? Some of you guys are first-time parents. Like, you got like, I got this figured out, you know, and, uh, and you quickly figure out, yeah, you know, some of these guys are like, I've been there, you know, you get, you get a few kids in, you're like, what was I thinking, right? So when we first had ours, I was like, you know, I kind of grew up in a house where there's a lot of rules and be on your best behavior and all this type of stuff, so I'm just going to have kind of a free-for-all, like, it's just going to be a lot of fun, and we're just going to, you know, you know, have a lot of fun. So we did that for like a year and a half, and I was like, this isn't going to work at all. This is going to be bad news, right? And so I was like, "Well, then, you know." Later on, as we started getting a couple kids in, I was like, "How do you parent? Like, because I know you're, you know, you're supposed to, you know, take care of when something goes wrong, but how do you do this?" And so I started asking God, "How do you parent me? Because you know that God is the loving Father, right? So I figure, however God parents me, ought to be good enough for me to parent my kids. And I'm imperfect at it, sure." but I started to ask that question. God, how do you parent me? And as I started to think about it and study it, I realized that, well, God doesn't punish me, so why would I ever punish my kids? Now remember, let's, let's think about the definition of punishment. The definition of punishment is that some of you guys are like, where, where are you going with this, Pastor? <laughs> punishment is to inflict a penalty for something from the past. God never, God doesn't punish me. Jesus already took care of that. But what does God do? God will discipline me. What is discipline? Discipline sounds similar, but it's totally not, okay? Punishment is to inflict a penalty for the past. Discipline, the root word of discipline is to disciple. It means to train for the future. I don't punish my kids, I discipline, I disciple them to train them for the future. Now, the, you know, the Hebrews even says that sometimes discipline is painful. Sometimes correction is painful. Sometimes when God disciplines or disciples me, it requires pain in order to get me to disciple for the future. But God doesn't punish me for the past, he disciples me for the future. And so some of us are struggling with that. We're like, we always wanna to go to the negative, we always want to, like, have you noticed that, that your brain always wants to go to the negative? You always, it, it's like we want to run from resurrection. It's like we want to run from the purposes and the, the goodness of God instead of run to the purposes and goodness of God. I, I saw this um, video this week that, that helped me think about it a little bit differently, about how we we tend to gravitate towards the negative, even about God. But if we could just lock on to the goodness of God, we would see some things about God
1: that maybe we've never seen before. So let's check it out. Have you ever noticed in your own thought patterns, now this isn't highly philosophical, theological at all, you just observe your own mind. And if there is something negative or problematic, you will wrap around that immediately. Watch yourself. You can have even a moment of great joy, and it's hard to wrap around. It's hard to sustain happiness, it really is. You have to work, you have to choose, you have to clear away the garbage to sustain honeymoons and moments of happiness. They they, they run away for some terrible reason. It's almost diabolical, I mean that. We're attracted to the negative. Like rather hold on to victimhood than... Yeah, yeah. Why? Joy is not easily sustained. We lose it in a moment. So that's I'm making the connection with resurrection. That resurrection has to be uh, not just surrendered to, but has to be recognized as such. I'm feeling really content and full right now. How can I deeply say yes to that, you know, and allow that? Now, now I admit there are some people who want to sustain it at a superficial level, which becomes addiction. And we're not talking about addiction, but. Resurrection is not our natural state. It's always a gift from God, but a gift from God that we have to assent to and choose and make our own. You don't have to believe anything, you just watch your own mind. And you're doing this every day, and I'm doing this every day. Avoiding resurrection and choosing hell. I'm mean, gonna yeah. And when you think the, the, the negative commentaries that people write non-stop. For years on end about their first wife or their, <laughs> the job they lost, or they, they really do dig a pit for themselves that pretty soon it's dug so deep. And now we know this is even true physiologically, that, that the neural grooves that you overuse become myelinated, defined, strengthened, and the ones you don't use die. This can be proven. If you never go to the neural groove of mercy, never. I don't practice mercy. (laughs) By the time you're in you don't know how to be merciful anymore. That's why most old people are, as we say, set in their ways, not much fun to be around if they've only kept affirming the same obsessive. See, most thinking is obsessive thinking. It took my contemplative practice to recognize that in myself, but then to help other people recognize it in themselves. That if you watch, you tend to think the same thing over and over and over again. It's <laughs> why? What good is it after a while? So, unless you jump out of that neural groove that you've over-practiced, now that's what you're doing in contemplation. You have the temptation to the resentful thought from the guy who did me in yesterday. All right, okay. You can go back to that, but you've thought it once. <laughs> you've felt it through once. You really don't need to practice feeling resentment toward him for another 24 hours. You're doing yourself a favor and you're doing the universe a favor to move to another response and say as my father Francis taught us, there those you think are your enemies are your greatest friends because they're going to teach you exactly this, (laughs) that you don't know how to love yet, that you're not in Christ, in love. You're in resentment is what you are. And when you're in resentment, you're not in Christ. The two can't coexist. He's bringing up again the,
0: the point of the soil ultimately, that certain things grow in certain soil, and we tend to gravitate towards the negative, even about God, that God is out to punish me. Now, someone might say, well, what about Paul's thorn in the flesh? Didn't God put that on Paul to teach him something and maybe even punish him for being boastful in some way, and he put a sickness on him? That's what some people will say. Well, let's look at that real quick. Let's see uh, what, what we can discover. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So it sounds like there's something here to teach him a certain thing. It says... Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so a lot of people will say, see, you know, God put sickness on him to teach him a lesson. And a lot of pastors and armchair theologians will try to guess at what the sickness was. And they'll be, you know, well, maybe it was, the, maybe it was his eyesight. And they'll, they'll, they'll grasp at all these reasons as to what the sickness was. Let me tell you very clearly why they can't tell you what the sickness was. It's because it was not a sickness. Now, you might say, well, that's just your opinion, Sean. Let me prove it to you in the very next scripture. I'm baffled as to why people get stuck here. Don't listen to anybody who says that it's a sickness, and I'll show you why, because the word of God says it's not, okay? Let me show you. The very next scripture tells us exactly what the thorn is, okay? Watch this. For the sake, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, there I'm strong. This is the thorn right here. All of Paul's persecution. He talked to you, to zoom it out, you wanna be a good Bible student, you zoom out in context, you see it all in context. And what it's talking about here is all, of, you know, Paul says, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been, you know, I've had persecution. I've had hardships. I've had insults. It's taught his thorn is the persecution. And so he went and he asked God to remove persecution three times. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, how many of you guys know that the scripture says that if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, that we will endure some sort of persecution? You're not going to get out of that. But how many of you guys know God's grace is sufficient even in the persecution? God didn't put sickness on Paul to punish him or to teach him a lesson. God doesn't do that. You will go through persecution, but God's grace is enough. Now let's go to the last lie we're going to uproot, and it's this. You can kind of see a theme here, that God keeps score. Somehow God's like keeping a tally. I used to, you know, wonder when I was a, a kid, I would wonder, how many sins do I have to commit before God just cuts me off? Like, before that's it. Like, I've, you've done one too many, God's got a list up there. And then I was like, well, you know, God, you know, he's pretty forgiving. But I wondered, how big of a sin? You know, if, if I really screwed up, would there, would there be a line somewhere? Like, does God forgive murder? You know, if I murdered somebody, would, would God forgive that? You know, and how big of a sin? And then I started to think, well, you know, like Pastor Aaron preached last week about the second coming of Christ. I was wondering, like, okay, if, if Jesus comes back and I had sinned, but I didn't have enough time to repent for that sin, and he came back, would I just be out at that point, you know? How big of sin? Does God keep score? And here's, here's what I want you to understand. How many of you guys know that God has a big plan for your life? He has, a, he has visions for your life. God has, dream- God has dreams for your life. God has dreams and purposes and plans and things he wants you to see, but you realize that Satan also has dreams and visions for your life? See, God will show me many times the visions and plans, even about how things would happen, like in a service as I'm praying and preparing during the sur- you know, for the service, God will show me things. But you know that Satan will try to show you things too? Let me give you an example. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it was Saturday night, and I came right up here it was during worship. And as I was worshiping, all of a sudden I saw this scene of me giving a, an altar call response for people to come and to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and no one showed up. And I immediately knew that was from Satan. That, that wasn't a vision from God, so I rebuked that, I cast that out. Do you know that weekend we had 90 to 100 people come down to the altar call to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit? See Satan wants to paint a picture in your life. He wants to paint a theme that God is out to get you, God is out to punish you, God is out to keep score. But again, let's look at this 1 John chapter 4 verse 16 and 17 it says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have listen to this, we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. You guys know that the truth is that God keeps no record of wrongs. Well, I'm not making that up. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talks about the definition of love, and one of the definitions is that love keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, the Bible says that He will cast our sin as far as the East is from the West and remembers it no more. Here's why this whole topic is also important. If you misunderstand the love of God to you, you'll misappropriate the love of God to other people. If you think that God is a God, a transactional God, you'll have transactional relationships. If you think that God is out to punish you, then what happens when something goes wrong in a relationship? You'll try to punish the other person. If you think that God is a God who keeps score, what are you going to do in your marriage? You're going to keep score. See, if we misunderstand the love of God to us, then we'll misappropriate the love of God to other people. But God is a God of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 says this, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's saying there are some things that are gonna pass away, but love is one of these things that's always going to be there because God's love is eternal, not temporary. God's love does not depend on every single moment of every day and it fluctuates based on whether you were good that day or not good that day. God's love is an eternal love. Can you walk away from God? You know, I I really, you know, I know a lot of people struggle with that. I'm I'm just going to say it this way. If you're worried about whether you've turned your back on God or not, you probably haven't. If you're still worried about it, you probably haven't. I think it takes a lot to run away from God. But if God is still a voice in your life, I don't believe you've, because God is chasing after us. Scripture talks about that over and over and over again that God is still chasing after us. God's eternal, not temporary. So as the worship team comes back up, I'm gonna tell you what I, I saw happening here at the end of this service. And one of the things that I saw, and I'm talking to believers now. I'm not talking to people who maybe don't, have never experienced the love of God. I'm talking to people who have been saved, who've given your life to Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand. That God's grace and love is still available to you today in the same way that it was on the day you got saved. It's not like there's a certain type of grace that happens at salvation. How many of you guys know at salvation you couldn't earn the grace of God? You couldn't buy your way into the, you couldn't earn your way out of your sins. That same grace, that same love is still available to you today. It's not a one-time thing. It's available even after you've been saved, even today. So if you find yourself struggling today, I want you to understand, it's the same nature of God. It's the same love of God. It's the same grace of God. It's the same goodness of God that's available today as it was in salvation. And just like at baptism, we talk about baptism, sometimes you have to go back to the waters of baptism and to leave your old life. Maybe sometimes daily you have to do that. In the same way, we might have to go to the empty tomb. Maybe daily, and remind ourselves that God is a resurrection God. And that I'm not stuck in my sins. That God is a God of love and grace and victory. And so, what we're gonna do as we have this last song is I'm just simply going to open up the altar. And if you want to come and have a moment with God, it's not to get saved or anything like that, it's just to recultivate the soil. Maybe to remove some lies, maybe to leave some lies at the altar. Maybe to remind yourself of the goodness and the love of God. Maybe it's to repent of sin. Because somebody might be saying, well, yeah, Sean, but what about the holiness of God and obeying his commandments? Yeah, we talked about that two weeks ago. We talked about God needs your yes. The holiness of God. In fact, we just read about the holiness of God today. And even the fear of the Lord, which is a worshiping reverence of God. But here's what I want you to understand. If you're, and you you may need to repent of sin today. You may need to turn from sin today. You may need to step into the holiness of God today. You may need to do that. You may need to leave some sin at the altar today. You may need to repent today. But here's what I want to challenge you. If you are going to repent of your sin today, repent to the right God. Because God is not a God of punishment to you. He's not a God of wrath to you. He's not a God who keeps score. You you don't come and you repent to a, a God who's keeping score. If you're going to repent today, repent to the right God. God is a God who loves you, He's a God who's for you, He's a God who died for you, He's a God who gives sacrificial love for you. He's a holy God, He's a loving God. Repent to a God. Who loves you and gave himself for you. Repent to the right God. And so many believers come and they try to repent to a God who they think has been keeping score, or they repent to a God who they think they owe. They repent to a God who they, they think that is out to punish them. Now, God calls us to repentance, but he calls us out of love. And somebody might be afraid, well, Sean, if you talk so much about the goodness of God, people won't repent. No, that's actually against scripture because scripture says it is actually the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. When you find out how good God is, you'll want to repent. You'll want to walk in holiness. You'll want to surrender your life. It's actually the preaching of the goodness of God, like I preached today, that should cause you to say, I want to be with God. I want to leave my sin and the lies at the altar I wanna step into God's grace and goodness. I wanna live a holy life. That's the fruit of talking about the goodness and the love of God. And so as we sing this song, if you need a moment at the altar, I wanna encourage you just to come to the altar and have a moment with God. Would you stand up with us? Let me pray over us. God, I pray right now for anyone who needs to uproot some lies, maybe repent of sin, maybe have a moment of just recultivating your goodness and reminding ourselves of your goodness. Lord, we open up our heart to you fully. We're so thankful for your goodness. Lord, we want to have good soil that can produce a harvest of good things in our life and for other people. Help us to understand who you really are so that we can love people the way you really do. And Lord, as we worship today, we want to come to the altar and we know that we're not coming to a the altar to a God who's got a big stick, who wants to beat us over the head for what we've done wrong, but we're coming to a God who loves us with arms open wide, who wants to disciple us to the future, who wants to guide us into truth, who wants to guide us into holiness, to guide us into his love. And so for that, we're so thankful, so thankful for your love, your goodness, and your mercy. In Jesus' name.